listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10, that's jdp one zero and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, show your support to Baronfig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Elaine Neff is a postdoctoral fellow of the Department of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. He has a PhD in economic history from the University of Cambridge, where he was a teaching fellow at the economics department. He held visiting positions at the Bank of France, Universidad de los Andes, and Rutgers University. His research has been featured in BBC Radio, The Wall Street Journal, The Temps, and Newsweek. Join my conversation with Elaine Neff. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So as you know, the first thing we like to kick off here is going back to 2008, uh, global financial crisis. Tell us about what you were doing professionally during that time and kind of what was going on in your life. Yeah, I think uh, during the actual crisis, I was uh, in the US, I was doing an exchange program uh, at the Wharton School, but um, just a little bit after the crisis, I did a an internship in a in a Swiss bank, and uh, part of my job was to uh, to call American customers and ask them to liquidate or liquidate all their assets, because um, the bank was trying to get rid of all American customers because there was a whole uh, issue on uh, on 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 taxation and uh, 
American customers were no longer welcome in Swiss banks. So that was quite quite exciting. Interesting. So as we can see what's going on in markets right now, we're recording here on Friday, actually Friday the 13th, and the Fed is about to announce some more stimulus. And I believe the ECB and other cent- central banks around the world are probably going to have some type of coordinated effort. But I thought it would be interesting to go back and talk about some things in your background here and events that you've studied that maybe five, 10 years down the road, people will be talking about what's going on today. But sometimes it's helpful to look back to into history and, and look at some of the events in the past. So Starting in the with the ERM crisis in 1992, everyone knows England lost a lot of money to Soros and Druckenmiller was involved. But let's talk a little bit about some some of your research in that um, event. Yeah, sure. And I think um, one nice way to compare it to today as well is um, well, you mentioned the, the issues today where there's very little. There, there might be some co- coordination in the future, but uh, so far all the central banks have sort of acted on their on their own behalf. Right. And, uh, the nice setting we had in 1992 is that there was a lot of coordination and co- co- collaboration between central banks. Right. So they would uh, they would meet at the BIS in Basel. They would meet every month. Uh, they're still doing this, but they really coordinate their policies, and uh, and that's when this crisis happened. Interesting. Interesting. So, so yeah. So, so the ERM crisis, um, so I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with it, but the idea was that uh, the European currencies were all in a fixed exchange rate system and uh, they kept their exchange rate fixed to one another and they had a margin of 2.25% on each side. So it was quite a tight uh, currency band. And uh, what they were doing is they were trying to build up towards the future of the euro, which they had in mind. It wasn't really called the euro at that point. It was called the EQ, but it was sort of the ECU is sort of the same idea, and uh, and that's when um, the Bank of England. I mean, England joined uh, this sort of peg. Uh, it was sort of the, the and uh, and and that's when Soros decided to bet against the Bank of England because he thought uh, that their fundamentals were not aligned with uh, their actual policy. Uh, and that's when when uh, when the, the crisis happened in uh, what we call Black Wednesday today on the sixteenth of September, uh, nineteen ninety two. Right. And and for people who don't know, ERM stands for Exchange Rate Mechanism. And as you pointed out, this was an effort to keep, you know, this thing in a very tight range. And what are your thoughts on how they that system was set up compared to the euro now? And maybe how, you know, the, the, the pros and cons of how the, how the system is set up now compared to back then? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a it's an interesting uh, crisis to study because the the euro sort of resulted from it, and um, we work on a paper with Barry Eichengreen here in Berkeley where we're trying to show that uh, some of the issues that uh, came up later in the euro are already present in uh, in 1992, uh, and the main issues are things we saw in the in the debt crisis where Greece was suffering a lot. Uh, was that these countries don't grow at the same rate, and that that's an issue when you have a currency union. Which is the case, uh, and and so something interesting we found really about Black Wednesday that a lot of people don't know. So we know that Black Wednesday, the Bank of England lost 22 billion in one day, uh, and that that was essentially the same amount as the GDP of two countries combined, right? So it's a huge at the time. So it's a huge amount. Uh, 
to lose in a few hours. Uh, and that's been very well documented. But what, what we don't really, what we didn't know until we went into the archives and found the, the records, which are now open to the public, is that the Bank of France, a few days later, lost almost the same amount over a few days. So they lost something like 20 billion over a few days. Uh, but they didn't leave the RM and they managed to buy that money back in the next few uh, few months. Uh, and so they didn't make any loss. But the shock was of the same side in, in, in Paris that it, as it was in London. And I think that was quite interesting to to find out by looking at these declassified uh, documents that we are now analyzing. Interesting. And obviously, they probably didn't want to have that get out at the time and, and have more fear in the marketplace. Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of it is communication, right? Uh, and it's how you, you know, how you, you you show strength to the market as a central bank. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about this. It looks like a blog you wrote talking about it's only cheating if you don't get caught. A creative accounting at the Bank of England in the 1960s. I think there are some interesting points you bring up in this piece here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it's very interesting because I learned a lot about what China is doing today and they're, they're doing something fairly similar. A lot, a lot of central banks are doing similar things. So let me maybe explain the, the initial setup. Um, so the Bank of England between 1950 and 1970 was in a fixed exchange rate system. That was the Bretton Woods system, right? Uh, and that meant they had to keep a fixed exchange rate with the dollar uh, and they had an exact parity and they had a 1% band on each side. So they could they had some wiggle room. And um, as I think Krugman pointed out and many other people, when you have a fixed exchange rate system, uh, what's very important is to show that you have strong reserves. And that's exactly what's happening in China, right? For a very long time, we had this impression that China had this uh, this this huge amount of reserves that were really um, a solid backing of the currency. Uh, and I think that's what was happening in the Bank of England, but the Bank of England did not have a lot of reserves. Uh, and so they would uh, they would run out of dollar reserves very quickly, And uh, but they knew they only had to publish their reserve figures every three months. And so what they would do before publishing these reserve figures, they would call their, um, their friends at the Fed, and they had this rolling swap agreement, so they're like the ancestors of the swap that we saw in 2009, where they could just borrow um, US dollars uh, against sterling in, in quite big quantities. So they would, every time they had to publish their reserves figures, they would call the Fed and then they would borrow massive amounts of dollars. And then they would publish this, this window dressed or manipulated accounts. And the next day they would get rid of these dollars they had borrowed and they would be broke again. So it was sort of a way to, um, to pretend they had more reserves than they actually did. And this is a, a segue, I think, into some of the issues that Europe is having right now. Let's talk a little bit about you know, what's going on in the various countries, whether it's Italy, Greece, and some of the debt buildup there and how that relates to the currency issues. Uh, yeah, I think the, the big problem in Europe is this currency union, right, which uh, forces all these countries to have the same monetary policy. Um, and essentially, this means it's Germany's monetary policy uh, because they're leading the ECB. They're the ones who are really uh, setting the tone in Frankfurt. And that has some good implications in the sense that, uh, well, you know, from 2000 to 2012 or, or 10, maybe, uh, Greece could borrow money very cheaply. So that was one of the good externalities of this currency union. And there's some bad uh, externalities to this currency union, which is that single current countries cannot run their own monetary policy. Mm -hmm. And that was exactly the issue uh, that happened to Greece in 2010. 
Um, so they couldn't lower the interest rates because that wasn't controlled by the ECB. And that means they had to go through internal devaluation. So they had to reduce their, their wages, they had to reduce their prices. And that's very painful to do uh, as, an, as an economy. Right. And typically, it's if a country can print its own currency, then there can be at least no worries about a default. It might be more of an implicit default where it's a loss of purchase, purchasing power, let's say. So, you know, real versus nominal terms. But if a country is able to print its own currency, then there shouldn't be a risk of of taking on more debt is kind of how it's taught in textbooks. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's that's the other thing as well. And um, and something interesting about Greece, actually, if you look at uh, the country's history, I've done a quick survey and you can see that they were in default roughly a third of the time since 1900. So like, you know, every third year they've been in default roughly. Um, and so that's that's quite big, right? And uh, I think it's interesting right. <laughs> to look at the market prices on, on, on Greek bonds now because you, you'd think uh, that, that investors quickly forgot that uh, it's a country that often has had um sovereign default so i think it's interesting yeah it's that's pretty interesting i know argentina had something called the debt museum where you could go to uh you know to to, to view the, this museum and show the, the long history of debt and then i think it was a couple of years ago i saw an article that the museum had to close due to its own lack of funding or debt <laughs> i don't know if it was it was pretty kind of funny and ironic but but yeah i think let's talk a little bit about the the currency i don't want to say currency manipulation but uh, you know fx intervention as as you might call it talk about who does it why and kind of break it down to someone who might have a little knowledge about this stuff but wants to learn more because i think when people think about currencies there's this exchange rate that people know okay if they go on vacation in europe or somewhere else then there's going to be an exchange rate where they may get more or less for their u.s dollar but um you know let's talk about that and talk about some of the intervention that happens around the world yeah sure uh, I think one thing a lot of people, at least you know, informed people in the in the field, are aware of is that central banks buy and sell bonds uh, on the bond market or treasuries or, or, or other assets to influence the, the interest rate. But a thing that most central banks in the world do, but not the US, not the UK, and uh, not the eurozone, but like many other countries do, is they are trying to to influence their exchange rate as well, right? So what we do in what people do in the US is that they would only target inflation, but a lot of other countries target inflation, but they also have an exchange rate goal or they have a secondary exchange rate goal. And the way they would manage exchange rates is by buying and selling um, their own currency uh, against, say, US dollars or, or another currency they are they are trying to peg their currency to. And these operations can be sterilized or non-sterilized, so that's why it gets a bit technical. Um, so um, sterilized operations, they do not affect the money supply. So they only affect the number of um, f- currency in circulation, but they do not. They do bond purchases to offset anything that would affect the, the money supply. So if you think of China, if they are trying to uh, make the currency uh, appreciate, they will want to uh, buy some renminbi and put more dollars on the market. And that would reduce the amount of renminbi in circulation, right? So that could technically have an impact on the interest rates. 
And to offset that, they will do also separate bond purchases to make sure that the money supply stays the same or that interest rates don't get affected. So when you're talking about central banks buying and selling government bonds, it's referred to as open market operations to influence the short-term interest rate in the U.S., the, the Fed funds rate. And, and so this other type of operations you're talking about happens in the FX market. Is that right? Yeah, so there's two operations that happen. One is just buying a foreign currency. And then to make sure that the interest rate don't get affected by this, they would also uh, do a bond purchase to offset the, to keep the number of local currency at the same level, if that makes sense. Right. And so I can see here that with the Swiss franc, Let's talk a little bit about what they're doing with the unsterilized intervention, which is might be a little bit out of the ordinary or interesting. Yeah. So um, I think what's happening there is very interesting. So what the Swiss National Bank is essentially doing, they are printing, printing money that has no intrinsic value. And with this money that has no intrinsic value, they are buying uh, U.S. corporations, right? So um, maybe let's let me give a <laughs> Right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so they, they're essentially trying to make their currency depreciate. Uh, and by doing this, they're putting a lot of Swiss francs on the market and they are purchasing dollars and euros with it. So that means that their balance sheet now has roughly $900 billion um, of uh, currency. And, uh, and then they end up having all this currency in their balance sheet. And that's not giving them any return, right? And that's an issue. And then that's why they're going out to buy things like U.S. equities, Apple stock, and those type of things. Exactly, and they—I mean—they have quite a balanced portfolio in that sense. The, the 900 billion, only 100 billion—that uh, was before the Dow shock, but only 100 billion was invested into uh, the Dow Jones, and that doesn't sound a lot, but that means that they now own 0.3 percent of the Dow Jones, which is quite impressive, I think. Right. So 30 basis points of the Dow Jones, and. So obviously this has been talked about well f- well first off let's back up a little bit and talk about why they're trying to have their currency depreciate against the dollar and the euro. Yeah, I think that's a good one. So I think that because they're not doing sterilized intervention they're trying to do two things with this, right? They're mm-hmm. trying to create inflation and they're trying to depreciate their currency. And I think it's interesting to think whether they're currency manipulators or not. I think Trump has really used that word a lot, and I think it's an interesting um, it's an interesting choice of word because it shows that you're doing this to get an advantage. And what we sort of have in mind when we think about uh, competitive devaluation or you know currency manipulation is the 1930s, where every country would devalue its currency to try to get a, a trade advantage over other countries, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's sort of what's happening. And then I think what the Swiss National Bank would maybe argue is they would say something along the lines of, well. The reason why they're doing this is because, you know, the world is in turmoil. There's a lot of uncertainty and uh, uncertain investors, they like to invest in the Swiss franc. And so that's why they're getting a massive influx of investment into into the country. And that's strengthening the currency. And uh, and that's sort of an unwanted consequence of uh, uncertainty. And so that's why they're trying to depreciate their currency. Okay. And then the reason they're buying equities is, is for their own balance sheet so they can have appreciation in these assets denominated in US dollars to yeah. have at least a portion of their their balance sheet there. Yeah, exactly because if you're a central bank and you you have US dollars, 
or maybe you have an account at the Fed, but the account at the Fed is not going to give you any return, right? So you right. think of where do you want to put your money. And uh, so the most of what they're doing, they're buying, you know, normal bonds. They're just investing them like uh, any safe investor. And then mm-hmm. there's this 10% where they decided to go a bit um, unconventional, let's say, and they've invested that into uh, the US equity market. And now, if you, to give you an idea, I think that the 28th biggest shareholder of Apple, and I think, yeah, they're in the top 20 uh, shareholder of the top companies in the world. So it's pretty, uh, pretty strange, let's say. And is there any type of precedent for central banks in- investing in this specific part of the capital structure, i.e. equities in the past? Or is this a very new something that's very new? Mm, I mean... The Bank of England was a private bank for a very long time, right? So they would have done this kind of things mm-hmm. uh, until very late, until they decided to be, until they became only public, I guess. But mm-hmm. I don't think that the, the scale here is very impressive, right? So the budget of the whole country, so the budget the country runs is 10 times smaller than the assets the central bank has. So not, I know it's not how it works, but in theory, at least, the central bank could f- fund the government for 10 years, right? So that's not something they should do, <laughs> just to be clear. But uh if they they have the money to pay the the, um, the government for ten years, right? To run the country for ten years, and that asks a lot of democratic questions as well, right? Because that means that the parliament is actually only deciding on a very small chunk of money. They're deciding on like roughly ten percent of what the central bank is deciding on, and so that means that these five six people in in the board are deciding on much bigger issues than actually the whole whole of the parliament. And I think these questions are always sort of interesting to put into perspective. I see. And then now when you look at this unsterilized intervention that they've been conducting, what would be, let's say they they did not do this specific policy action, what would be the outcome and how would things maybe be different right now for them if they weren't doing this? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the big issue, I mean, the main reason they're doing it is for the main mandate, they have to to, to avoid any deflation, right? So they want to they wanna keep inflation mm-hmm. somewhere closer to 2%. They don't have an exact mandate, but they're trying to be close to 2%. So I think that's the main policy goal. I mean, that's the main objective there. Uh, and the other thing they're doing as well is that they are they have a lot of pressure as well from uh, exporters in the country. So if you think Swiss watches or Swiss banking or things like that that are being exported or even manufacturing a lot, uh, these people want to have a, a, a lower exchange rate if possible to be able to... Uh, export more and that has big impacts on unplo- employment in the country right so when uh, when these watches become too expensive abroad uh that there's the, this is going to have com- consequences on the country they're going to be selling less watches and uh, that's going to create unemployment so i think these are the two worries to try to keep some inflation and uh, avoid uh yeah the crashing of the industry essentially that makes sense. And then w- with their balance sheet do they own any swiss or european equities or and why haven't they gone down that road yeah i think that's a brilliant point i think that's exactly mm-hmm. the point uh, I'm, I'm trying to make policymakers aware of is that well the two things a if you're investing into foreign companies you're essentially supporting the competition of your own local companies right mm-hmm. um, i mean that's just an argument you could make right if they're helping say you know american watchmakers if they exist or something like that they're actually essentially funding the competition which is right you know, Maybe something that you don't want to do as a central bank. But yeah, and, and the other issue is if they would buy um, local stocks, so say they would buy Swiss stocks, it would also have pretty much a similar effect. I mean, it wouldn't have an ex- as much of a direct exchange rate effect, but it would also help with inflation. 
but they would be essentially buying um, the means of production, if I may. Uh, and that's something that's <laughs> that's essentially communism, right? So mm-hmm, if they mm-hmm. buy their own stocks, they would actually be nationalizing the country. And so I think this distinction is very thin, whether you're buying U.S. stocks or your own stocks. Uh, because if they would buy, like, say, 90% of the U.S. stock, I'm not saying they have the means to do that now, but they could be going up and up, then that would be essentially nationalizing the U.S. from a, from a, from a, from a state perspective. And I'm not, these, these are really extreme ways of thinking. I'm not saying that's what's happening, but I think it's just conceptually interesting to, to think of. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly the road I was thinking of going down was, okay, if they buy up equity in all of these countries in the homeland, then they're essentially kind of nationalizing all these companies, depending how much stake they owned, obviously. And now with the U.S., it's different in a way because it, there are other these large companies in another country where they're getting a return. But obviously, then that has the issue of causing companies that are competing with, you know, like you mentioned, the watchmaker example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think um, the other issue as well is that the that means that the 28th biggest shareholder of Apple is actually never voting on decisions, right? And that's an issue of corporate governance as well. So imagine if the Norwegian oil fund did the same thing. I mean, I guess they are doing the same thing. But imagine if all the central banks would own 0.3% of the US stock market. Uh, well, then at the end of the day, Apple would be managed by a bunch of central bankers who don't go to, to uh, shareholder meetings and don't vote. And so that would mean that the cost of taking over a company would be much lower, right? If you have a lot of, inst- the more institutional investors you have, well, the, the less uh, voting, the less it takes to make a decision go through. And I think that companies like Vanguard, I'm not really sure if they actually do exercise their voting rights, but I think they would at least manage, uh, they'd be sort of aware of, of their power and they would probably take some decision if the if the board of a company would take some really outrageous decisions. Whereas the Swiss National Bank, by definition, is not going to vote in any meeting, right? Even if the worst things happen. So yeah, I think that's an issue. I see. So they wouldn't send a, let's say, a representative to be able to vote the shares or something like that? No, because they own a share of like every US company, right? So that would be even like uh, from a human resource point of view, they would not have okay, know, like, okay. 500 oh. employees who they could send. Oh, right, these. right. Well, I was thinking of a company like Apple or something where they, they might own a, 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 a at least a significant chunk of it. Well, but then um, it becomes sort of foreign endurance, right? That'd be a foreign country coming to uh, another country and managing the companies of that country and that's politically a bit uh a bit right and and so the, and just going back quickly to the mechanics of this is they're going on the fx market and converting francs into u.s dollars and then using those the u.s dollars to buy these u.s equities is that right yeah exactly that's what they're doing yeah okay and so and there's no law in the u.s where there's barring um foreign ownership because i know like if if for individuals there are certain laws where they can't buy u.s equities but is there any i guess it's because it's would be denominated in their own currency or something like that but is there any talk about having legislation or or trying to stop this or well i think that's the that's the beauty of you know capitalism or that's that's one of the core strengths is that anyone is allowed to own anything as long as they have the means to do it, I think. Um, and I, I know the French sometimes get a bit touchy when uh, foreign owners try to buy their companies. But uh, even when the you know presidents are involved in trying to avoid a takeover, it's usually very um, it's usually very difficult from a, from an international framework to have a law that would not allow investors to come to your country if if you have a free open market. 
So, and the other thing that's happening with this, I mean, this 0.3%, which, and they're never selling, right? I mean, that's the idea of this. They're never going to sell unless they change their policy, right? So that now they're long on the US stock market, even during this crisis. Currently, they're long on the US stock market and they they don't make any uh, management decision, right? So they're not going to say, oof, maybe we should sell. They're just keeping this 10% until they decide that they want to change their monetary policy. And that mm-hmm. means that this is a frozen part of the of the stock market. Just like Bitcoin, some people have lost their Bitcoin. Well, they're going to be long on Bitcoin their whole life. And here's the same thing. These guys are only going to divest from this, uh, from this US stock market when they decide to change their monetary policy. And that's mm-hmm. not going to happen in, in the short run. So this is pretty much free beans for the, I mean, it's free resources for the U.S. stock market. And it's, it's, it's yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say they like it, right? So, and so and going back to the mechanics of this, I think it, when someone would look at this at first glance, they would say, okay, they're, they're trying to t- target this inflation rate of 2% or w- whatever it is. And they're trying to depreciate their currency against let's say the dollar or or a basket of other currencies is there a concern that but obviously on the other side of the table you have this appreciation that's going on in the portfolio of US equities so you're at least i guess they're growing their balance sheet through that at least slice now is there any concern that this is going to cause the the reputation of the Swiss franc to to have that unsettling in investors eyes or the the global economy well i, I guess i mean I'm, i don't think they would say it openly but i think that's also uh-huh. what the swiss <laughs> bank is sort of hoping i mean like you know no they don't want the currency to crash and be uh, in a case right of course yeah but what they want is uh probably that international investors are maybe less keen to um invest into switzerland unless they want to invest into real assets so that they they probably want to mm. have a, avoid having too much financial flows. So people would just come in to invest into financial uh, instruments and they'd rather have investments into the real economy, right? And uh, because these flows are really, uh, while well, they're changing a lot, and that's what we saw in the in the Asian crisis in 1997, is, well, if these flows come in and they suddenly come out, well, then you'd have an issue. I think in Switzerland, there's very few cases when they, when they rapidly went out, uh, because of the stable nat- nature of the country. But uh, I think that'd be also one of the worries you could have. But they're essentially trying to, well, devalue the currency. So they, they want the reputation of the currency to be cheaper, essentially. <laughs> yeah, and then that helps exports and helps them in, in other various ways, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then and isn't that kind of the goal, maybe not explicitly stated, but implicitly of central banks around the world is to devalue their currency, get inflation up, and then kind of inflate away their debt, so to speak, for the long-term goal, at least? Yeah, I think that's that's what Trump is saying with currency manipulation, right? That's his, that's mm-hmm. his argument. Uh, I think now it's a bit more complicated than that. I think most countries would rather have a stable exchange rate than a devalued exchange rate, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of countries just want to be able to trade with other trading partners and avoid any any big shocks to the exchange rate right because that means you can make long-term decisions that means you can you know if you know how much you're going to make profit in in 10 years well that's a great thing to know right or like if you know how how you can smooth the business cycle that's amazing for companies i think most central banks would want a stable currency and not necessarily you know a, a falling currency or anything like that and the risk as well is that if your currency starts falling or we've seen it in argentina and there's many other examples you can really have a crash and then that's very bad for the economy as well yeah and let's t- touch a little bit on china because they are such a global powerhouse and at least up and coming 
And there was talk recently about the Hong Kong dollar losing its peg to the US dollar. And then China has been manipulating their currency for many, many years. And there's, there's been talk about how long they, they can do that for. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that and, and your thoughts there. Yeah, I think one interesting thing I, I learned about um, the Bank of China is that, well, they had these reserves and they, they really wanted to keep these reserves at a certain level. And um, because they knew that if they were going down, that would signal to investors that their currency is doing badly, right? And these reserves are public. So they had to find a lot of ways to avoid touching the reserves while still be, being able to influence the, the foreign exchange. And so the, re- the way they've done this is through forward contracts and, uh, and also swaps. And that's how they've been trying to like hope that the currency would recover by the time the swap expires so they don't have to pay it and, uh, and that they could in that way influence uh, exchange rates. And the other thing to keep in mind really about China is that they have, they have huge capital controls, right? So um, there it's, it's, it's a bit easier, let's say, to manage their currency because the, 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 the capital market is not open yet. But when it, when it would become open or when it will open, then things will change really as, as a, on the role of the, the, the renminbi as an international currency as well. So that's going to be something interesting to watch if it happens. Got it. And by capital controls, you mean money flowing in and out from other countries to their equity markets and, uh, and other capital markets could be debt markets, etc.? Yeah, exactly. And and it's it's much more practical than that as well, right? If you were to travel there, well, you could maybe not take more than $10,000 cash or something like that. And so, yeah, it's, that's that's exactly the the, the, the way they, they're managing. Uh, right. And they've been opening some things up, I know, at least internally to people who want to invest. Let's say in the U.S. would be like E-Trade or uh, a Schwab account, that type of thing. So I know... Well, I've been reading, they've been opening that piece up to internally, and then I'm, everyone is talking about the China A shares. So it seems like that's something that's slowly changing um, and will continue to change that way in the future. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And these regulations are very complex, right? They're like very uh, multi-layered and they you have regulation pretty much on anything where money could come in and out. So it's uh, they're very complex uh, sets of regulation and they can always try to ease it a little bit. Or, yeah. Right. And then the, one of the reasons for that most likely is is really being able to keep control of the currency, probably. Is that is that right? Yeah, exactly, and and avoid um, avoiding this like you know hot inflows of hot money, which then leaves as soon as something happens. So, um, well, imagine now with this crisis, um, if they had been open to foreign capital markets, well, a lot of U.S. investors who would have invested heavily to China would have withdrawn all their funds uh, when they saw the crisis unfold, right? And that would have been a much bigger shock for the economy than it, than it is now. Uh, and this is not happening in the U.S., so no one's withdrawing from the U.S. because of the crisis. I mean, no one's like pulling funds out of the U.S. to put them somewhere else. They're just changing asset classes. But what what China wants to avoid is people investing into the country and then you know removing that money when they think uh, something's going badly, and and that would have very negative uh, effects. Right, and I know just within the past, I don't know, call it six months, we've been hearing about how the Hong Kong dollar may have to break the peg of the with the US dollar. Did you have any thoughts there? I, I know I haven't read too much about it recently, but there's been a couple high profile investors <laughs> that were pretty adamant about this. And, um, and it, so far we haven't heard too, too much news or at least in the mainstream media about it that I've seen. 
I mean, but be, did you have any general thoughts there? Yeah, that would be very interesting because um, the Hong Kong dollar peg has been uh, one of the most strong pegs ever, right? So the central bank is um, is one of the most respected central banks on in terms of intervention. So very few investors uh, have tried to like beat the central banks, the central bank in Hong Kong because it's uh, they have a very good reputation on keeping their pegs. So uh, it'd be interesting to see the peg break, but um, I don't know. I, I don't really see it happening, but we. I'm not really sure what's exactly going on on the market at the moment. So yeah, it, it could be that'd be very that'd be a historic moment if it breaks. Yeah, definitely. And let's talk a little bit about the initiative for green and sustainable central banking. I know you've the Fed has been talking about ESG has been the, the popular topic, and just recently before this newest. You know, market dislocation and liquidity crunch <laughs> broke out. They were they were even holding meetings and and I know writing some research papers about it. So they might have to put that on hold for now, but it's still going to be top of mind. Let's talk a little bit about some of your uh, work and research in that area. Yes, I've literally just started thinking about this, but uh, at started when I was looking at this balance sheet of the SNB. Um, and two of the companies they hold in in their balance sheet, so the Swiss National Bank, they own uh, they own uh, Exxon Mobile and uh, and Chevron, and these two companies are um, two of the five most comp- polluting companies uh, on the on the planet. And um, I've done some quick calculation. I've looked at the um, 25 biggest Swiss banks and uh, how much assets they own in uh, Chevron and Exxon. And uh, it turns out that um, just by owning the shares, so the the CO2 production of, I mean, the CO2 part of the ownership of the shares by Swiss main, major Swiss banks is roughly um, five five million CO2 tons per year, and that's just that's just ten percent. That's the same as ten percent of the whole uh, CO2 production of the country. So I think the argument I'm trying to to build up, and it's, it's still very new, is to show if you can measure. Um, we, we measure how much a country pollutes by looking at you know what the cars pollute, what the houses pollute, what the companies pollute. But one thing we never look at is financial assets. And if you could measure financial assets of a of a given country, say you take Norway or Switzerland, which have these very huge funds, wealth funds in a way. Uh, you'd see that the pollution, the impact on CO2 is much higher than what we see uh, by just measuring um, the sort of in-border pollution, which we do it, how we do it traditionally. I see. And a lot of this is really comes back to fossil fuels. Is that right? In in natural resources where it's very intensive on the, on the, (laughs) I just drew a blank too, (laughs) but (laughs) intensive on the environment. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, and uh, and I think it, it's they're they're really interesting questions, right? To see how um, single companies can pollute more than uh, than the state. So if you take uh, again an example from Switzerland, which I've been sort of looking at recently, uh, Glencore, which is one of the companies listed on the Swiss uh, stock market, produces roughly six hundred forty three uh, million tons of CO two per year, and that's I think something around twelve times as much as the whole country, right? So uh, I think that's that's also something something interesting to to keep in mind to see how uh, well some companies pollute much more than others and how, what we can do about that and that's that's an interesting uh, uh, exercise to do I think. Yeah, I know. I think when you look on every level, people are thinking about this. I know the various pension funds here in the U.S. have 
been really taking a close look at this. CalPERS, I know there was some talk about them divesting from fossil fuels, and it's kind of been an ongoing debate. Same with CalSTRS, the teacher's uh, plan here in the U.S. and some other big plans. Um, I know when you look at Alaska and, and places like that, a lot of their, as you mentioned, kind of that endowment piece is because of natural resources and comes from oil uh, royalties and mining and different things like that. So it's, it's a complicated question. And then there's all the open question of, are you missing out on a return here, which could actually be beneficial in the long run? Maybe, (laughs) I mean, obviously it's, it's weighing the pros and cons of, of that return versus the damage to the environment. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting ethical question. But I think what's more interesting even is that if we think of these pension funds, I mean, if you'd actually survey uh, the owners of these pension funds and give them, I mean, I'm not sure if it's been done, but, you know, ask them, would you want to have X more on your pension or would you want to, like, not invest in these five companies and not know what's going to happen? I'm not sure what the answer would be, right? But it'd be an interesting question. But the other thing that a lot of people in this space are thinking about is um, the financial risk of these assets as well, right? Because um, if you're holding, um, you know, say you're holding uh, assets that are drilling oil or things like that, well, they might not be around in, in 50 years, right? So um, so these companies might die. Right? We know a lot of companies have died, like, you know, a lot of, say, companies from things from the past, from industries that don't exist anymore have, have died out. And so if you're investing very long term as a pension fund and you have these assets in your portfolio, you might be taking a risk uh, if you're thinking if you if your horizon is the next 60, 70 years. Right. And that's what you're doing as a pension fund. You're not thinking about the next two or three years. And so the question is whether they should in the long run be into these asset classes is a very valid one from an investment investing point of view as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense and it would be an interesting question about asking these plan participants um, and maybe having them, you know, have a voter say in it. And I, I don't think that's been done yet, but that could be an interesting way to go about it. Now, I think, you know, in closing, going back to some of this FX stuff we talked about, when you look at this current crisis, obviously, it's some people look at the virus as just the black swan event that showed up and we had a lot of excess built up in the system, you know, before this happened. So people say, well, this was kind of the trigger for it. And then you, you can debate that back and forth, whether how much of that is, is true. It's probably maybe a mix of both, but I think, so as you mentioned right now, so far it's just been central banks putting out plans on their own instead of maybe in a more coordinated fashion, at least in the past week or two, we saw a couple announcements with the BOJ and ECB, but now, you know, maybe there will be something more coordinated going into the near future. But I think just touching on the piece of the FX intervention, obviously the Fed is going to be buying uh, large-scale asset purchases with this repo issue they're buying the 30-day bills now they just announced they're going to be buying all the way to the 30-year maturity so all across the curve and other central banks will probably be doing the same now i think the question is you mentioned with the us and the ecb they don't do the fx intervention they're only really conducting the open market operations is that right yeah 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 and so is you know in your view do you think there is that a tool they could use they always talk about the tools and their toolbox <laughs> is that a tool they could use to be able to i don't know call <laughs> i mean that and that's the question is what is their mandate <laughs> support asset prices to target 
you know, inflation, but is that a, a general tool that you think they'll start using? Uh, I mean, it would, it would certainly be a <laughs> because it would scare the markets, right? So it would change expectations. But I don't think yeah. it's a very good idea because uh, there's the whole competitive nature of it, right? So if the U.S. is trying to devalue the dollar against um, against the euro, well, the ECB yeah. do the same thing. Right? It's sort of the same situation with trade where if someone starts, you know, putting a trade barrier, everyone else is going to follow. Um, mm-hmm. This would is what happened in the in the Great Depression, right? And that's part of how the Great Depression sort of was also accentuated, is because all these countries start to do competitive devaluations. And I think that's one of the lessons we have from the Great Depression is that you know there's no point to try to just devalue your own currency if you know all the others are going to do the same thing. So they're called beggar than neighbor devaluations. So they're sort of competitive devaluations. And I think so that be, be a very dangerous route to go. Uh, and and you know I think very few people would think of, of doing that. But in terms of like you know doing something unexpected, that's definitely something that uh, usually has a better impact than just doing the same old uh, policy. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to be trying all types of new things. People have already t- been talking about the ECB buying equities. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, but I, again, I mean, that's the whole point, right? If, you are, if you're buying equities, I mean, I, I love this debate, right? Because you can phrase it very, you can phrase it in sort of like, you know, expert talk. And you can say, the central bank decided to buy equities at the margin, blah, blah. And then people go like, oh, okay, they're just doing something we don't understand. But you can also say, well, actually, the central bank is buying the companies in, in certain countries. And then you go like, wait a second, yeah. where, where did I see that last? And you, you see the, it's the, the manifesto of the Communist Party, right? It's, it's communism, which I, yeah. you know, I, I have no stance on it. But like it's it's funny that you know the highest institution of capitalism, when they try to like do these sort of reactions, they end up doing some tools which are essentially uh, communist. The same in two thousand and eight. I mean, when you know uh, Royal Bank of Scotland got nationalized. Well, like you know, if you want to put an efficient communist system in place, that's the first thing you should do. You nationalize the banks. So that's step number one. And then I don't know what step number two is, but that's how you would start. Which I think is always quite comical to uh, to put into perspective. Yeah, it's it's very ironic. I mean, there's it's one thing when you're buying and selling government bonds and then maybe holding gold as a reserve. But when you're buying, you know, actual businesses and pieces of businesses and equities and anywhere within the capital structure on that piece, I think it's a whole different conversation. So, well, this was a really interesting talk. Why don't you tell people where they can find you and follow some more of your work and research? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm on Twitter, so it's A L A I N N A E F at um, yeah, that's my that's my Twitter account, and uh, I have a website as well. Um, we have a few papers coming up. I have some working papers that can be read, and I even have a book coming up in roughly a year. So <laughs> a lot of things coming up. <laughs> Great. Okay, we'll we'll link all that in the show notes, and look forward to maybe you coming back on in a year uh, before the book comes out, and, and talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, tons of fun. I mean, I'd love to come back, definitely. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod, or 
you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.